Welcome to Episode 7 of Battle Rhythm, a podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. First, we're going to start talking about the recent intelligence scandal in Canada where an RCMP officer was caught spying. We'll then talk about the mess between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the Trump administration, negotiations with the Taliban, that the latest game of Apprentice in the White House, Justin Trudeau, and on Hassan Minaj's show, and foreign policy in the election. response to a question was asked by one of our listeners about what is the role of Canadian Armed Forces in making foreign policy. And then we'll have our Emerging Scholar segment with Aden Duraden on research and extremism. And our featured interview is with Tone Danielson, a Norwegian anthropologist. She was interviewed at Ergomas, the European Research Group on Military and Society, their conference in June in Lisbon. And her work is on embedding with the Norwegian Naval Special Operations Forces. Peeve will address this whole discussion about cancel culture and deplatforming. Stephanie, it's been a very busy weekend and week of defense and security, both Canadian and otherwise. I think we should first mention that if people are interested in the intel story about the high-ranking RCMP officer arrested for spying, they should not be looking to us for expertise, but to our colleagues, Stephanie Carvin and Craig Forsese, who of the Intrepid podcast. This is way inside their lane and way outside our lane. Sometimes it's best for us just to duck and cover, don't you think? Yes, but if this story has more and more implications for Five Eyes relations and has an ally dimension, then we can do some inter-podcast dialogue. Yes, maybe we should bring them on. I, I do think uh, we should not be so worried about the Americans getting upset by this, because all I have to do is say Manning or Snowden at them, and that might quiet <laughs> them down a little bit. Yes, there's five of us. Yes, but every country has had spying problems. Uh, the Brits have had their own you don't have to go to back to um, Kim Philby. You can go to more recent British scandals and the Australians have scandals. Maybe the, maybe the Kiwis have been able to dodge it, but of the five eyes, I don't think anybody's immune. Great. So you're not worried about this at all? Oh, I'm worried. I just think that we, I don't have as much expertise to throw at this as, as other people. Uh, I do think that this is going to cause some wrinkles in our various allied relationships. But again, nobody can get that pompous about it because everybody's had this problem. No, I think you're right. So what else have we been tracking the news? There's uh, Iran. You'd think the U.S. had an Article 5 pledge with Saudi Arabia or something. Yeah, that's the thing is, is that the United States does actually not does not have a formal defense agreement for the mutual defense of Saudi Arabia and the United States. We've acted like it uh, with the Gulf War of 1990-91, but we, the United States and, and Saudi Arabia don't have the same kind of relationship that you hinted at. With NATO, the United States only has that with a few countries, with, with NATO countries, with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and I want to say South Korea. And that's pretty much it. It doesn't have mutual defense tre- uh, treaties with everybody, just with a handful of, of allies. And Saudi Arabia is not that. And yet the security commitments appear more robust. Yes, it's striking, isn't it, that, that Trump is much more willing to come to defense of a country that has not bled for the United States but is not quite as enthused about countries in the United States that have actually bled for the United States. So Saudi Arabia has always been a, a runner-up or winner of the annual contest of worst American ally. And Saudi Arabia has been having this war with 
the Houthis in Yemen, which they've they've pursued in a particularly violent kind of fashion, not very effective, but violent. And this is either a Houthi response or an Iranian response. And if it's the Houthis have done it, it's with Iranian help. So either way, Iran's implicated. And speaking of partners of dubious quality, what do we think of the proposal to bring the Taliban to Camp David and then the unraveling of that plan? Was it a good idea or not? I mean, what's at stake is a ceasefire and future peace deal, as well as the possible withdrawal of over 5,000 American troops from Afghanistan. But the United States and its allies have not been able to defeat the Taliban, and they've been at it for 18 years. So if Trump really wants to withdraw troops and to put an end to this war, what options does he have? Well, the question is, is, is what are we trying to get out of this? If it's just trying to get out of the war, then he can just negotiate something that provides what happened in Vietnam, which is the so-called decent interval, that is, time between when the Americans leave and the country falls. Kissinger got the Nobel Peace Prize in, 19, you know, I think in 1973 for ending the war with uh, North Vietnam, but it left North Vietnamese troops on the ground in South Vietnam. And so South Vietnam fell a couple years later, and the United States can claim, ah, well, we weren't around for that. It's not our fault. And so that might be what's going on here, because uh, Trump wants to get out. Uh, but the reality is, is that any civil war ends either by victory or negotiation. And we're not going to win. We're certainly not going to win with 15,000 troops if we couldn't win with 100,000 troops. And so we have to come up with a bargain. The question in part is, why, are the, why isn't the Afghan government in this bargaining space? Yeah, well, that was one of the conditions that was set for the um, talks with the Taliban at Camp David. And all these conditions seem to be falling apart. There was the agreement to a ceasefire. There was uh, the need to recognize the government of Afghanistan on the part of the Taliban and then renouncing all ties with al-Qaeda. But it really seems obvious that the Taliban is not committed to peace, but Mr. Trump's supporters want an end to the war in Afghanistan, even if it does not bring peace. So I think it's easy to see why the president is so motivated. Yeah, he's looking for a win, or he was looking for a win where he can claim victory over and making a big deal. And what's interesting about the details that have come out of this is that there was an agreement that the Taliban had, had agreed to, but it was a done deal. It wasn't, wasn't needed to be negotiated. And they, they were thinking they would come to the United States and sign an existing agreement, whereas Trump, in part, wanted to be able to claim credit for helping to seal the deal, for making the final arrangement. And so he insisted that when they would come to Camp David, there would still be some haggling to be had. And the Taliban did not find that to be particularly attractive. And you know who else was against talking to the Taliban? Bolton, and he got fired. Yeah, and this is more like The Apprentice, isn't it? Uh, every week somebody else gets fired. To be fair, Bolton lasted longer than any previous Trump national security advisor. Mm, you did the math, eh? You counted the months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he lasted actually, I think, something in the order of one McMaster and about five or maybe even ten Scaramouches. Because <laughs> McMaster lasted for about a, 400 days and... Bolton didn't seem to be around that long, but was actually around for 520 days. He was there for a year and a half. And it's very possible that whoever gets named next might serve out the this uh, full first term of Trump's administration. So maybe we'll only get four in four years, but we also may get a dozen. It, it really is uncertain. Wait, how many weeks did Michael Flynn last? Well, Michael Flynn lasted a month. A month, okay. Yeah, so we have a month, we have about 15 months or so, and then we have about 18 months. So it's uh, been quite the rotating door. In fact, I had forgotten that Flynn was the first national security advisor. And how can one forget 
a national security advisor that was immediate, immediately, not so immediately, indicted for being an agent of multiple governments. Yes, exactly. Mooch is more memorable in your mind than Michael Flynn. Yeah, oh my. And Mooch didn't really even do the job in the first place, whereas actually Flynn was was relevant. He helped to, to make a, some of the various arrangements in Syria go awry because he was working on behalf of the Turks. Yeah. <sighs> Those were the days. We cannot talk about the Mooch anymore on this podcast. It's already received too much airtime. Uh, that's that's uh, what I would call a, a pie crust promise, easily made, easily broken. <laughs> anyway, I'm relieved that Bolton is going since he uh, pushes for hawkish views on the Persian Gulf, Iran, North Korea, Russia, so I can sleep more soundly. Yeah, well, a friend of the podcast, uh, Aaron Simpson, had a good tweet about how brokenhearted Bolton might be if there's a war with Iran and he's not actually part of it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the current game in D.C. is trying to guess who the next national security advisor is. But that, that just reflects the turmoil that's been going on ever since Trump was elected. I do worry, getting back to Iran, I do worry that the United States is going to do something. And the challenge here is that Iran has a lot of ways to cause trouble in the region and beyond besides either supporting or actually attacking a Saudi Arabian oil platform, an oil refinery site. They can cause the Strait of Hormuz, where a lot of oil flows through, to be trouble, if not entirely closed. They can create all kinds of conflict there, which would cause oil prices to skyrocket. Yeah. Well, what I really want to know is, since when is it easier to negotiate with the Taliban than with Iran? <laughs> and the thing is, we had to deal with Iran. This this could have been, this is entirely unnecessary, that this could have been just respecting the agreement that Obama made. Even if it was not ideal, it was better than the alternative. And we're now seeing what the alternative is, which is a lot of uncertainty, more violence, and one thing that has come up, and I, I blogged about today, is that Trump's record of blustering and bluffing can encourage this kind of attack. Because if you think that Trump is a paper tiger, that he's always going to back down, then you keep pushing until you find a point where actually he doesn't back down. And this might be that moment, or it might be that he backs down. So the United States loses either way, either Trump's a paper tiger or he's not. And then we're stuck in a conflict that we didn't really want to have. We've uh, gone from the art of the deal to deal or no deal. And it's looking like no deal. Yes. Uh, not great. On a lighter note, uh, we did have a question about Trudeau's good looks. <laughs> <laughs> There's no segue here to, to be made. It's clear that uh, people have wanted to hang out with Trudeau. There's that great picture of Ivanka ogling our prime minister, uh, when Trudeau went to D.C. to try to improve relations with her father. So it's true that people have tried to get close to Trudeau because he is hot, I suppose. <laughs> have we gotten anything out of this? Well, I happen to think that we all benefit when the Trudeaus pose for Vogue or when Justin Trudeau graces the cover of Rolling Stones magazine. Uh, the prime minister has leveraged his fame well, except maybe for his appearance on Hassan Minaj's Netflix show, which was called The Two Sides of Canada. And I gave you some homework. I, I said that we should watch this before the next podcast because uh, the first five minutes actually look like a commercial for the liberals, but then it quickly unravels and we see that his good looks were mentioned again and again. But during the interview, Prime Minister Trudeau looks incredibly uncomfortable and on the defensive as Minaj attacks him on his foreign policy record and other issues. Yeah, I guess it's funny that Trudeau is, and we'll get to this, ducking the, the foreign policy debate because this is something that he probably should have ducked. Because these shows, whether it's Samantha B or The Colbert Show or, or The Daily Show, if they give you a lot of time to talk, chances are they're going to they're gonna throw things at you that you don't want to talk about. And they raised the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, which never looks good. Uh, he raised 
the stance that Canada wants to be good in climate change, but Trudeau's government is facilitating the, the delivery of oil from the sands to the to I guess Vancouver, and so they were able to show a lot of um, hypocrisy or contradictions in Canadian foreign policy. Yes, and as uh, Minaj says, with great cheekbones comes great responsibilities. Yeah, and the thing is, I, that was a fair thing to point out. I, I would go back and say that Trudeau, his good looks did pay off in one way, which was that Donald Trump is incredibly shallow and does care about the looks of, of the people he engages with. And so I think the initial good relationship between Trudeau and Trump was partly because Trudeau has movie star looks. You know, he looks like a leader, therefore Trump takes him seriously. But yeah, it does set up Trudeau for a fall when he shows up on a TV show and he gets asked tough questions. I mean, the reality is, is that some of the things that that Trudeau got asked were, you know, these are really tough issues. Mm-hmm. Canada, he inherited the arms deal with Saudi Arabia, so it's kind of hard to pull out. He mentioned the key thing that people overlook, which is that the Harper government made a deal with the Saudis that has all kinds of things apparently written inside of it that means that if we break the deal, we would owe the Saudis many billions of dollars. And so they can't talk about that because for some reason they also signed a non-disclosure agreement or something like that. But there's stuff in that side, that deal that the Trudeau government inherited. On the other hand, if the Trudeau, Trudeau loses, there'll be all kinds of things that Sheer inherits that he wasn't expecting either. I guess that's part of the game. These are the types of issues that I think will be featured during this election cycles, media campaign, especially the, the debates. So we're likely to talk a lot about the armored vehicle deal to the Saudis. We're likely to talk a lot about Canada-U.S. relations, mm-hmm. and perhaps more broadly, the various free trade deals. But I think probably the issue that will get the most play is China-Canada relations. What are your best bets? Well, of course, the hard part that the conservatives face them is that they're in, they'll insist that they could have done better, but it's not clear what, what better would look like or how would you get there. Uh, engaging Trump is very, very difficult. It's very hard to say that they could have gotten a better deal. I think all Trudeau has to really do is say, you know, we d- we're currently not facing uh, steel and aluminum tariffs anymore, unlike the British, the French, the Germans, the Japanese. And so we've managed to get rid of that with only modest changes in NAFTA. So I think that his comeback could be that that actually Canada did very well, given the nature of the negotiating partner on China. Again, I, I don't know how anybody can handle China these days because they're really being very tough and they have a lot of leverage that we do not have. So again, how what is the conservative stance on this? They'll try to make Trudeau look bad, but I'm not exactly sure what the alternative is. So it's it's one thing to be able to say you could have done better, but it's another thing to be for them to be able to say what that better would look like. That's true. I think yeah, Trudeau can bring back these issues in in a good light for him, and and I just recall the kind of uh, solidarity and support that Trudeau had, and also Minister Freeland during the renegotiation of NAFTA. At that time, it seemed to me that, you know, he was able to, to capitalize politically on being sort of the underdog in this negotiation. And, and on China, with the, the crisis in Hong Kong, I also think it's, it's risky for leaders to attack him too harshly, given the state of the diplomatic relations right now and the detainment of two Canadians, but also the, the protests in, in Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I think I think it'll come up, but I think it's it's the, these issues are are not going to be the central to the campaign. In part because everybody understands that people tend not to vote on these issues. The media is not going to push it. There's not that many people in the media who care about foreign policy. We can sort of count them on on one hand. So I, I just don't see it being pushed very hard compared to the tax plans, compared to uh, the favorite controversy of the day, which is the Bill C21 about the religious garb worn by 
government officials in Quebec. I think the pipeline stuff will, will get lots of play, but not so much from a standpoint of what the other countries care about, but the, from the standpoint of what it means for Alberta, what it means for climate change. So I think that's where climate change will fit in is, is that and on uh, carbon taxes. But I don't think there are people are going to focus too much on on what it means for Canada's role in the world that we try to say, as Hazan Minaj pointed out, we talk a good game about climate change, but what we actually do is not so good. Well, I disagree a little bit because, well, at least on the issues of Canada-U.S. relations and uh, Canada-China relations, these two diplomatic relationships have, I think, an, an impact on Canadians' bottom line. So I, I really think that not on par with domestic issues necessarily, but this will be an election where foreign policy issues are, are discussed a bit more broadly. Uh, Steph, let's finish with a question we got from our audience, which was, what role would you say that the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defense should play in shaping Canadian foreign policy, given, the, of course, the importance of civilian control of the military in any democracy? Well, I wish this was a live question period, because I would ask the listener more context about, about the question. I'm wondering what prompted it and, and how it came about. But I do happen to think that the Canadian Armed Forces can play a part in shaping Canadian foreign policy without undermining civilian control of the military. And I think that they can do so through Two primary channels. The first one is just because I view deployed service members all over the world as brand ambassadors for, for mm -hmm. Canada. I mean, they wear the uniform, which is adorned by the Canadian flag. So they represent us. So you, you'd like to think of soldiers out there. And, and when I say soldiers, I mean all of the service members. Uh, but soldiers tend to have that more direct contact with uh, local communities. But you want them to display professionalism or even passion, awareness for other cultures when the mission calls for that kind of engagement. Uh, so Canadians understand that when that's not the case, <laughs> the armed forces can impair the pursuit of foreign policy objectives. So I think that that point is, is important. Uh, another way in which members of the Canadian armed forces can play an influential role globally is through defense diplomacy. And that can happen in a lot of ways, but perhaps the most visible manifestation of that is training of, of foreign armed forces and nurturing these types of military to military ties is another viable strategy to promote mutual understanding between countries. And so when diplomatic relations become tense, these military ties can prove useful. The United States is probably better at, at doing this than we are, uh, but, but Canada is engaged in training and capacity building with partners all over the world. And I think that does generate goodwill and that does enhance uh, the international reputation of Canada. What do you think? Well, I was interpreting the question a little differently, which was, uh, whether the military and Department of National Defense influence the making of decisions uh, mm -hmm. back home. I remember the Jean Lang, Janice Stein book that suggested yeah. that we got stuck in Kandahar because the military hoodwinked Prime Minister Paul Martin in, in 2005. In my, in my book, Adapting to the Dust, and in other books, people push back on that the civilians had control of the military, civilians made the big decision. But it's certainly the case that the military favored Kandahar over other places for a variety of reasons, including, in my humble opinion, that the alternative of hanging out with Italians was not all that attractive because the Italians had a lot more restrictions on what they could and could not do in the, in the field. And if you wanted a helicopter show, to show up and take away your wounded, you'd want it to be an American or British helicopter. So there's that idea that, that they might tilt decisions in policy debates that, for instance, when there was the defense review that or the policy statement that, uh, sorry, Paul Martin wanted, uh, he found that D&D was not pushing the outside the box. And so he then asked Hillier, General Rick Hillier, to do it. And so that was a way in which the CAF set the agenda a little bit. 
and so the question then is on other missions in the past and in the future, will Canadian generals and admirals be the ones whose voices are heard in policy councils? And I think it varies. I don't think they should be dominating the conversation. If we're putting Canadian forces or possibly putting Canadian forces into harm's way, then they should certainly have a role in shaping the decision, not again, dominating, but uh, because they are the experts, of course, not that there are other folks who don't understand this stuff, but they are the ones who are going to be ultimately held responsible. And they're the ones who have the best and clearest ideas of what their forces would be doing. So I do think that they should have a role in influencing the debates that ultimately produce foreign policy. They shouldn't be left out of the room. But again, ultimately, all those decisions should be made by the civilians, the prime minister, the defense minister, people like that. Well, as I mentioned, I think we need to go back to the listener and ask what prompted this question, because I'm like you when I think of the way you interpreted the question, my mind goes back to the Hillier days. But more recently, I'm wondering what's the event, what's happened in the news recently that would spark this question? Uh, Steph, it was good talking to you. I guess we'll be talking to you directly in about two weeks. You're going to be coming to town for a special pod with you, me, and Phil Agasse. Uh, who is one of my colleagues here at Carleton, is a co-director of the CDSN and who is running a, the- a workshop in between on Canadian defense procurement up our section today. And we'll then turn to the graduate student segment with Dur Iaden and then our feature interview with Tone Danielson, Norwegian anthropologist who spent more than a year hanging out with Norway's special operations forces. Uh, so my name is Adam Duryadin, and I'm doing my PhD in political science at University of Toronto. Uh, welcome to Battle Rhythm. And what is your dissertation about? So my dissertation is about understanding why don't people join radical groups. And I know it sounds weird, but I can explain in detail. Well, please do. Please explain. Um, so the previous research that talks about recruitment of individuals in radical groups, it only focuses on people who join radical groups. Sure. And it gives us all these uh, risk factors or push factors, as they call it, such as a person facing social, political, economic grievances, Mm -hmm. the role of ideology, the role of social network, mental health, immigrant status, education. But what I always found interesting was that all these risk factors were present among a large number of people, yet a very few of them end up joining a radical group. So interested in studying those individuals who had these risk factors, but still made the decision to not join a radical group. And so what do you see as being the major causes of these people to, to not join or to join? So this is interesting because I just got my ethics approval, which is a long and arduous process. So I'm just starting my field research. So who are you interviewing for this project? Um, so my goal is to interview people who have uh, mobilized towards a radical group, and this includes people who um, are in correctional services who have already been uh, um, apprehended for their crimes, but also includes people who are in the pre-criminal space. So they are public about their affiliation with some of these radical groups, particularly in the right-wing space, uh, but they haven't crossed um, uh, crossed the line into actually committing crimes. So they are more public, they will just go outside, let's go to a parliament hill and protest, or they will be very vocal online about their affiliation or what they think. So I try to find these people through these channels and then ask if I can interview them for my research. And since you're a member of a visible minority group, 
walking up to white supremacists might be a bit of a challenge. How does that play out? So this is interesting because first, their whole shtick is that they are not racist. And I think that if they see me as someone, they see that I'm non-white and they see that public sees them talking to me, it kind of proves their point a little bit that we are not racist. That's one thing. But then I think another thing is that because these groups are um, um, on the on the not in the mainstream but on the further right of the spectrum they really want people to pay attention to them so as long as you're listening um, some of them especially those who are very public about their affiliation really like to talk because it's almost like they they're 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 just uh, happy that somebody's listening to what they're saying um, on the other hand, there are obviously people who are um, more in the membership uh, uh, side of saying things or who are just there as supporters, not officially as members. They are a bit more hesitant because they are often worried that if their affiliation with these groups become public, they might lose their jobs or their fa- families might get uh, impacted. So they are, they are a bit more hesitant in talking to me. And are you ever afraid when you're going to these protests for your own safety? Or does it seem to be that the case that, again, they, they want the PR, so therefore they're not that threatening? Um, I mean, I, I often feel nervous, uh, but it not particularly in, from a safety point of view. Is uh, because in public protests there is always a police police presence. So uh, if anything breaks out, whether it's violence within these groups, if they like end up uh, saying things that they uh, uh, they don't like among each other because they fight with each other as well, or whether it's with the counter protesters mm-hmm. who show up, if a brawl breaks out, police is always there to stop it. But yeah, I mean, going up to strangers to ask them questions about why they're there is it's I just feel nervous, I think. But it's more like the nerves that come with interviewing anybody that you don't know. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you. So what explains the puzzle that you're examining? So um, I just got my ethics approval, which means I have just started my research. Um, but my what my research design is that I try to look at the life trajectory of a radical individual, such as like Aaron Driver. So I look at all his life trajectory, what happened in his life that pushed him to the point where he became radical. Mm-hmm. And then what I try to do is try to compare his life trajectory with that of his friend or a sibling because these people also arguably went through uh, a similar process or had a lot of the similar risk factors but still made the decision to not join a radical group or didn't uh, become radicalized. So that's what I will be looking at going forward. But uh, in terms of your variables, what what are the key variables that distinguish a brother from another brother? And I can see how you're you had problems with the research ethics clearance because it's yeah. a very challenging project. Yeah. But so, what do you think of as being the factors that cause people to avoid radicalization or, or become de-radicalized or just uh, don't go on that path? So, what I'm trying to do is that all the previous risk factors that I mentioned, I'm trying to uh, divide them across uh, three levels. So, micro level being the psychological profile of the individual, mm-hmm. then the meso level, which is like your friends and family, um, um, your social network, mm-hmm. and the macro level, which is bigger political structural issues. Uh, my hypothesis is that it's most likely going to be the meso level. Oh, interesting. Which, okay. which I might find that it is wrong, but I, I'm going in with the assumption that I would find that meso level is the most important because I was just thinking, for example, let's say two brothers, they go to the same school. One end up joining a football group. Another person joins like an NDP uh, political club. So I think once you get join something, ideology um, and your rad- the process of radicalization like okay. uh, comes after. That's my hypothesis going mm. in. But it could also be that a person joins a soccer, uh, soccer team because they're interested in the sport in the first place. So I think hopefully by looking at the life trajectory, I'll be able to 
parse out these uh, the sequence of these variables so I can actually understand the causal, causal process. And I guess you decided to study particular individuals who who you could find siblings or friends of, so that way you can then test the, the, the hypotheses? Yeah, so the, yes, the goal always is to, the people who are part of my research are individuals who mm. ended up radicalizing and then have a brother or a sibling or a friend who, did, who made the decision to not do so. Interesting. So what is your goal when you finish your dissertation? I want to make money. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I'm keeping my options open. It could be government, it could be the private sector, it could be academia. I learned very early on in my second year of PhD. I saw, I mean, people have talked about this culture of overwork or romanticizing over, overwork in academia, and it doesn't really interest me. Like, I'm not going to work myself to death. So I'm just going to focus on a, a job where I can apply my knowledge in a, which, and which also allows me to have a good work-life balance and pays well. <laughs> That's an incredibly rational approach. Yes. Uh, and I wish you luck in your endeavors. And come back when you're done with your dissertation. And let, us, uh, let the listeners of Battle Rhythm know what has become of you and what, whether your hypotheses stood and whether you've been able to find the right work-life balance in the next thing you do. Yes, I will do so. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aden. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I am Dr. Tone Danielson. I'm the principal researcher at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment in Oslo. I have been working with Special Operations Forces for the last decade. And you just came out with a, a new book, uh, the title of which is? Making Warriors in the Global Era. And this book is pretty unique, pretty unique, uh, the, is, is very special because you actually got to spend 18 months on and off uh, embedded within the Norwegian Marine Special Operations Forces? Yeah, not on and off. I was still working for 18 months, so I went home in the weekends when then they went home. Mm -hmm. So if that is on and off, <laughs> on and off. And how did this start? It started that I worked with our Army uh, Special Forces on a technology project for a couple of years, and then the new commander of the Naval Special Forces invited me because they were going to uh, undergo a major organizational change and he realized that they needed an outsider's gaze on what they were doing. So they were prepared for the uncertainties reorganizing the commando is. Okay, and uh, did you in the end give him the feedback he was expecting? about the new organizational changes? No, I did not. Initially, I was supposed to spend six months with them. And he later said that I was hoping for you to give me a report with like five bullets pointed <laughs> to this. And then um, he could do it or not do it. It would be up to him. It turned out to be a very different process. Uh, first of all, I spent three times as much time with mm -hmm. them. And so the process itself, me being with them on an everyday basis, changed them and made them more aware of their own culture, mm -hmm. their own practices and mindset, their skill set, and, and which made them much more competent to do the reorganization and and also changed their operational practices. 
So it was less about you giving them advice and more just your very existence being in an observation position that made them more self-aware and changed what they were doing. Yeah, both, I think. Mm -hmm. Of course, they also read uh, all the things I was writing up mm -hmm. because the first drafts, this is Special Operation Forces, so it's all classified. Mm -hmm. We really, because there's not that many studies around, so we had to figure out to, how to walk the walk and talk the talk, so to say. So we had, I needed their help. So mm -hmm. my informants were also my critics. And many of these guys are well-educated. I mean, the whole command team has their master's mm -hmm. degrees. So they were good critics. And then we figured out what we could write about according to the, the secret act of Norwegian legislation. But it was a process and having good people to talk with them along the line shape both the work and their work later. Well, that's really interesting. One thing that you recommended for me to do was to read your methodology chapter. And you said that you, in your methodology chapter, admitted a lot of mistakes that you made along the way. And I think you were being a little humble because I, I didn't really see that many mistakes in your methodology chapter. So when you think of mistakes that you made along the way, what comes to mind? Well, as an anthropologist, what we actually look at are the borders, the limits. How far can you push things? And it's rather uncomfortable. You, in Norwegian, we have this expression of you're walking around in the salad, stirring up things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a lot of that <laughs> because I spoke fluent military. I am a social anthropologist by education. But I had worked for a decade with the armed forces. But I didn't speak Sufish. I didn't know where their limits were. So, yeah, I crossed some lines, and I really had to push my own limits a lot to be respected and trusted and build um, the bonds of, of loyalty with them. And you speak of Sufish, which is, I think, a really good term to sort of capture the distinctiveness of, of, of Special Operations Forces. And in, in the part of the book I read it, you suggested that this is sort of a transnational culture that, and maybe I'm exaggerating, and you can correct me on this, that the people in Special Operations Forces in Norway probably have a lot more in common with the Special Operations Forces in the UK, Canada, the United States than they do with the regular forces of Norway. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Uh, first of all, Special Operations Forces, as we know them today, was established during World War II. So it's quite new units and, and, and commandos. And they have been small, so it's only the last decade, decade and a half that they really became huge, meaning they have been training a lot. So they learned a lot from each other. Uh, Special Operations Forces also have this advantage, so to say, to be so small. So they not only have this conceptual, imagined community, but they also know each other. Mm -hmm. they, they have been working. Uh, Norway has invited NATO allies to the winter exercises in northern Norway, and they have been going to other exercises. But of course, the last decades, they have been deployed together, so they know each other well. And that's one of the interesting things about whenever I talk to military people, it often sounds like I'm talking to Oprah because they emphasize relationships, trust, uh, these kinds of personal ties, as opposed to sort of the stereotypical image of military folks as being just, you know, thugs or, or just shooting people. But it's, it's really about the soft stuff, the, the personal relationships that make these units more effective. It is. 
Special Operation Forces is about outthinking the enemy. Yeah, they do have state-of-the-art technology. They're really, they're big boys, they like their gears, uh, but it's also about knowing each other very, very well in order to accomplish their missions. They have to know it, each other, otherwise they will fail. Did you find yourself identifying with uh, the soft guys that you were working with as they struggled with dealing with civilians, with the politicians, with other parts of the military? Yes and no. I mean, first of all, they are really good in getting people socialized. I mean, this is what I called institutional apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And the military are really, really good in doing this. They, in Norway, we still have conscriptions, mm -hmm. so they sort of have this crash course, being a civilian and becoming a soldier within a year. Do I feel selfish? No. Yes and no. Uh, I know what they're doing and it's very homey. I feel home. But on the other hand, I'm a typical uh, anomaly. I'm a betwixt and between. Mm -hmm. I'm a grown-up woman. I was wearing uniform uh, during my field work, but they all know I'm not from the ranks. I'm not going to stay in the unit. Mm -hmm. I will leave. Mm -hmm. Sure, just a side question. Uh, are women conscripted in the Norwegian military, or is it just men? No, we have gender-neutral conscription. How long has that been going on? Since 2015. Okay, only a few years. Well, women had access to all units since the 80s. Oh, really? So they could technically could women serve in the special forces? Yeah, technically. There are no badged uh, women, but we have this elite unit of female elite soldiers. Mm -hmm. The last five years, it has been sort of an experiment, mm -hmm. uh, and they're conscripts. So we have like one little troop with males and mm -hmm. one little troop with women. Mm -hmm. They are uh, selected from the same criteria, mm -hmm. but they are kept separate. Oh, really? Because it has been a lot of discussion back and forth. Mm -hmm. Should women, should we have mixed teams or not? We have tried mixed teams, meaning if you have 10 guys and one woman, yeah. uh, all these women have to live by uh, male discourse and practices. I mean, practices are made by men for men. Being in, going back to Madeleine Albright's mm -hmm. uh, ideas, she's discussing it good in her book, uh, Madam Secretary. If you have all women, you have uh, a woman that is the leader, a second in command, signals, snipers. So you make good female role models. Mm -hmm. And what we saw after five years is that it has increased the level of also among the boys because the women shoot better and they think better. <laughs> so um, it has been an interesting experiment, but so far we have no female badged um, special operation forces operators. Which meant that you were on your own as the one woman in a, in a large group of, of men uh, while you were doing your research for 18 months. So how did that affect the work and how did it affect what your findings? Well, age and gender will always affect your work. It's interesting how few male researchers mm -hmm. that are thinking about how being a male growing up researcher affect their work. If you're only living your research in the library, it doesn't really affect it that much. But being an anthropologist does. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what we thought that would be 
the weak point, but it turned out to be a strength. Because I'm old enough to be their mother, I am not a Navy SEAL wannabe, so I was never a threat to their internal things. Sof has lots of these odd guys and geeks, mm -hmm. so they're rather, they like people that are not like the regular guy. So they made room for me. And one way in which you made room for yourself is that you decided to become the bad guy in an exercise. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, when you come along and you do participant observation, um, there are no room for dead wood. You have to participate. And the instructors didn't want to dress me up as a bad guy because they said, you're crazy, it's, it hurts. And of course, they send in the dogs first. So the dogs took me down, <laughs> and then the guy took me down, and they... Yeah, it was pretty rough, but and normally we use conscripts, and they volunteer for that, amazingly <laughs> enough, like myself. Yeah, but I did, I did all the roles, good guys, bad guys, uh, whatever they needed me for so I could come along and observe what they were doing. Excellent. You observed this unit in peacetime. It did not deploy while you were while involved with them. How, as a, as a social scientist always trying to generalize beyond your immediate observation, I guess the question is, is how do you know the things you observed in exercises, which are warlike but not war, apply in wartime? Did you, did you talk to people who came back from Afghanistan to see if, uh, if their experiences were sort of similar? Or Yeah, the reason I didn't deploy was that they didn't deploy as a unit mm -hmm. throughout that time. Deploying with special operation forces is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. So even though it, I had gone to, to Afghanistan with them, I would not be able to go out on missions. Sure. Even though they didn't deploy, sorry, uh, as a unit, it was people going out back and forth mm -hmm. to different uh, missions. And they are using their ex uh, experiences directly into training. Mm -hmm. And once I trained them to tell me good stories, they came back and they told me, hmm, you know what we did? Mm -hmm. So um, because I was with them so much, they became much more aware of their own practices and they even came and reported back. Mm -hmm. So can you ever know that sure. people do? I mean, it's always a difference between what people say and what they do and what they say they do. Mm -hmm. Not because they lie, but we are not really aware of what we're doing among themselves. And they started to use my sort of concepts and terminology mm -hmm. to develop their own practices. I think what we can generalize from um, good stories. Mm -hmm. Humans learn from stories mm -hmm. and you can hear that story and you can applicate it to something else. Is statistics mm -hmm. more valid? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm an anthropologist, so I'm not sort of pragmatic to that mm -hmm. matter. In the course of your 18 months, what was, and looking backwards now, after you've written this book, what was sort of the biggest surprise you, you experienced along the way? What I learned most from was the way they care for each other. Mm -hmm. This very strong sense of family, and in crisis, they are really strong helping each other, so this warmth and strength and, and caring is something I took with me. Yeah, and I was reading, again, in your methodology uh, chapter, which is the most interesting methodology chapter I've ever read. Thank you. That's um, <laughs> a low bar. <laughs> but you discuss a situation where you experienced a, a death of, of one of the members of the, of the, the team you were observing in the middle of an exercise. 
how do I mean in the end what did how do you react to that? How do you feel about your experience being in present in such a, a traumatic situation? It was actually twenty years since the last one died during mm -hmm. exercise. So it brought up lots of memories from the old members of, of the commando who mm -hmm. had been present the last time. And then we had a new very bad accident only a couple of weeks later. Oh, really? But yeah, he, I was sitting in the, in the rib, rubber inflatable boat, and he felt during boarding training, and he felt only a couple meters away from me, None of us were prepared for that. It was blue sky, flat sea. It was not like the rough weather that mm. we can really have in, in Norway. So we were not prepared. But on the other hand, they are prepared. If you train as you fight, you always train on the borders of what is physically and mentally and, and technologically possible. And of course, it affected me personally and the team a lot. One of your boys died, but that also uh, made me see how much their training helps them to come through and, and strengthen um, the units and, and, the, and the bonds and how their practices, they have SOP, mm -hmm. um, standard operational procedures, how to deal with it. And that gave an insight to this unit that I couldn't, unfortunately, have gained otherwise. Mm. I, 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 fortunately, sometimes you have to be there and be part of that mm. golden circle of trust and, and grief. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Moving from the, the very tactical level to the more strategic questions, uh, one of the things that people think about, and I've, I've been thinking about for the past 20 years, that you, and you mentioned that Norwegia, Norway has increased the size of its soft by a large degree, just like a lot of other countries. And they're doing a lot more of the, the heavy lifting of these wars. And it could be just that the nature of these wars for the past 20 years have required special operators. Or it could be that this is a way for politicians to manage risk, both because special operators are better and also they're covered in what I call secret sauce. That when things go wrong, politicians are less accountable to it because in many countries... Either the press has, has norms about not covering the stuff, or there are laws about it, or the legislature doesn't have much exposure to it. And so I'm curious as to your larger take, the, the larger scheme of things, what's your take on the role of SOF in the 21st century? Do you find that, that they're being used more because it's convenient, or because it's the nature of the wars, or somewhere in between? Well, I think it's a mixture of all these variables of factors, mm -hmm. of course. The war we are fighting today are complex in a very different way. I mean, during the Cold War, I'm Norwegian, we have common borders uh, with the Russians. And even though we are really the baby brother, it's sort of a stable. The borders are where they are, and we know who they are, and they know us, and we have this balanced relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of rather static, even though things changed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change that we are the baby brother. When it comes to the wars, we are and armed conflicts we are involved with around the world today. They're complex in a very different way. We are fighting networks, mm -hmm. not state actors, uh, and it's really hard to fight someone who's not like yourself. You mm -hmm. cannot fight a network with the cavalry, but mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. So special operation forces are 
better suited for this insecurity and, and different kind of wars. Because it's small units in most countries, they're really small, and they are special forces, uh, not super forces. They cannot do everything better than everyone else. They are unconventional ones and ought to be used in missions that you have to outthink the enemy. You cannot, not as uh, the superstars, but part of the joint forces. And they have to do their part. I think uh, it's interesting from a standpoint of comparative global science that the countries vary in how much they share your view, which I, I think your view is the, is the correct one, but for instance, from my research, I found that the Australians tended to rely very heavily on soft in Afghanistan as a way to minimize political risk back home because their commanders were told that you're not going to get promoted if you have casualties. And the way to avoid casualties was to have the special operators do it. And it produced a great deal of stress because, as you say, by the very notion of being special, they're small. And so you're asking certain groups to do six, seven, eight, nine tours while you're leaving a couple of hundred, not hundreds, tens of thousands of infantry guys back home wondering what their job is because they're not being asked to do this kind of heavy lifting in a place like Afghanistan. So I think it varies from country to country. I do do, one of the things I did notice was that Norway and Afghanistan, their conventional troops were restricted to the northern part of the country. But the Norwegian soft showed up in other places. And so I was always wondering whether Norwegian soft had different rules or because, or because they were soft, whatever violations of rules that happened, they just weren't as politically relevant. The military is a political tool. And it's not like all Norwegians go by the same rules. You will have specific ROEs, rules of engagements for the different troops. Mm -hmm. And they're given different, different tasks. So mm -hmm. it's not like, regardless of the question, the answer is 42. <laughs> in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So, I mean, each little mission is tailor-made and also the rules that goes along with it. And, and SOF do have a different rule set when they train mm -hmm. than our conscript. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Tone, for talking to me about your book. Again, what's the name of the book? It's called Making Warriors in the Global Era. I can't imagine there's another book out there like it. And so if people are interested in, act, in how, what, what it means to be selfish, what it means to be a special operator, and the culture that they live in, I think this is probably the best chance you can get because most people aren't going to be invited to spend 18 months hanging out with any special operators uh, anytime too soon. So thanks again for appearing on Battle Rhythm. Thanks a lot for having me, Steve. Today's P focuses on cancel culture. That is, are people being canceled, and is this a bad thing? Uh, this discussion has developed because we've had some people say some things, and then they either lose their platforms or they lose their audiences, and the people complain that this is abridging their right for sp free speech. And this is something that especially people on the right have been complaining about, that people are being banned or boycotted for the mistakes of the past or for doing something wrong. My take is, is anyone really canceled? Sean Spicer is now in Dancing with the Stars, after also getting a fellowship at Harvard, despite spending all of his time at the White House spokesman lying to the American people and really presenting an obstacle for the press to do their jobs. There's a good New York Times piece in 2018 talking about 
everyone is canceled, referring to a bunch of folks, including Taylor Swift, who is hardly canceled, Kanye West, who is hardly canceled, Shania Twain, and others. And the thing is, these folks aren't canceled. That is, that they are not removed from the public sphere. Mel Gibson still makes movies, Roman Polanski is still getting awards, and we can imagine all these other kinds of folks who have been canceled who are still getting heaps of airtime, heaps of play. And so I have two claims to make here. First, we have a right with our market power not to buy stuff from people who offend us. And people have a right to free speech, but not to platforms. No one is obligated to buy stuff from those who have sinned in some way. But people should also be aware that other people are not obligated to buy their stuff. If you take an unpopular political position, then you may lose some folks buying your stuff. If you've engaged in criminal behavior, then some folks may stop buying your stuff. This is not new. Social media makes it seem new, but people have lost audiences due to bad things they've done for a long time. And people have feared such things for some time, even if audiences do not go away as much as feared. The other side of this cancel culture concern is the notion that people are entitled to platforms. This is something that right-wing extremists have played with, uh, and this has culminated in Canada this past week with Ezra Levant getting an op-ed published in the Globe and Mail. He argued that press freedom applies to everyone, including racist outlets like The Rebel. Well, he might not put it that way, but I will. But no one is stopping The Rebel from publishing and broadcasting and podcasting and doing whatever it does. The question is whether anyone owes them time on their platforms to, to give to extremists. To anyone? The answer is no. No one is owed or entitled to space on the evening news, Colin Lynch is a newspaper, uh, on any podcast. And that's the basic reality. No one owes you a thing in terms of, of giving you space or time. And deplatforming, which is something that's been discussed, is not quite the same thing as cancel culture. It does seem to work, though. That is, notable white supremacists and misogynists have had a bit of a struggle getting their message across once they get booted from Twitter and Facebook. Again, this is not the government telling people that they can't speak, but private actors saying that they will not give those who advocate hate and violence space on their platforms to do so. I wish Facebook and Twitter did more of this, and I wish they did it better, as I constantly see people who are fighting off white supremacists get their accounts suspended. I think we need more deplatforming, not less. And yeah, as someone born and educated in the United States, I have an expansive view of free speech. I really do not like to see governments legislate against free speech. But again, free speech applies to government banning speech, not outlets being obligated to give awful people airtime. So how about we cancel this discussion of cancel culture until people really get canceled? Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.